Yeah, well, I, I've really appreciated uh, John this last uh, month and, and Dave at 9 o'clock kind of updating us on some of the, the different missionaries who we uh, support and partner with here at Wallula Christian Church. Just uh, pretty cool to, uh, to hear the stories of how uh, folks all around the world are pointing uh, others to Jesus and how we can be a part of that uh, to uh, uh, help them and partner with them to point others to Jesus uh, all around the world. We, we catch up with Peter and John in the book of Acts pointing others to Jesus. It was uh, an ordinary day, a day that uh, started like so many others had started. That, that group of 12 or maybe 100, 125 who had, had seen Jesus ascend into heaven, who had been waiting for the gift of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. They'd, they'd received that spirit at Pentecost and, and it had grown after Peter preached the first gospel message to thousands of believers. And now uh, th those folks who had remained in Jerusalem, like Peter and John, had uh, started with uh, participating in, in kind of those ordinary, uh, everyday sort of faithful activities that they had been used to. And, and so this day started like uh, any other day. Peter and John uh, at a certain times had found themselves going to the temple to, to participate in those times of prayer. And, and they walking up to the temple and, and got to the temple gate or one of the temple gates and, and they saw this guy who had been there maybe the day before and the month before and the month before that. I, I don't know how many times Peter and John had seen this, this uh, uh, individual, this man who was unable to walk. Uh, his friends had brought him that day to the, the temple gate there to, to beg for a living, to, to beg for a little money so he could earn some kind of living. And, and that was sort of his daily routine. And so we don't know how many times Times Peter and John had tried to initiate perhaps a conversation with this guy or or how many times they had been uh, sort of walked around the crowd that had gathered around him maybe or we don't know how many times that Peter and John had watched as others had uh, sort of looked away as soon as they uh, so as not to make eye contact with this guy or or even seen folks kind of step over him on their way to the temple but on this day uh, Peter and John walk uh, up to that temple gate, they, they find this, this, uh, this man begging for money, and he asks them for, for some, some money to, to earn a little living, and then looks away, I suppose, anticipating the rejection that he had sort of become accustomed to, and, and so he looks away from Peter and John, when Peter uh, looks at this man and says, hey, hey, look at us. And when he does, Peter, Peter uh, I suppose, disappointed him initially when he said, I don't have any money to give you. You know, what you're asking for, I can't offer you. But I have something bigger. I have something way better. In what I have, I will give to you. And so he reached down and he grabbed this man's hand. In the name of Jesus, Peter healed that man who, who I suppose for the, his entire life, the end of our story tells us that this guy was over 40 years old. And I'm not sure uh, why we get the, his, the age of this individual if if not to help us understand that he'd never experienced this before. He'd never been able to walk before. He had lived his entire life, or at least much of it, uh, with that same day-to-day -day pattern of begging for a little money to get by, to, to survive in this world. And Peter reaches down and grabs his hand, and he pulls this man up. And Scripture tells us that this guy leapt to his feet, that he jumped up, 
with Peter's help and through the Holy Spirit. And he runs into the temple, leaping and jumping and praising God as he does that. Uh, it's a remarkable scene. It's a remarkable scene because that guy had never walked before. When you think about somebody who maybe has been in an accident and they, they go through rehabilitation and, and uh, the, the trainers and doctors and, and physicians, everybody will talk about how they're literally learning to walk again, that that rehabilitation process is teaching them to walk. And, and here's somebody who has never taken a step before, and, and God just heals him. And he's jumping around and praising God. And, and I suppose that it's that commotion that begins to draw a crowd. And those same folks who had looked away so not to make eye contact with him, those same folks who had stepped over him or walked around him or gone to a different gate so they wouldn't have to face him, now see this guy who they knew had never walked before jumping around and running around and worshiping and praising God. And so they gather around to see what happened? How did this happen? Who's responsible for this? And Peter sees this crowd of folks. We don't know how many, but I, I'm guessing it's a really pretty large crowd. And he begins to share again the story of Jesus. He takes that opportunity. He takes that platform that was provided to him to share Jesus with this crowd. And that's where we're going to jump in to our story this morning as Jesus, as Peter is pointing others to Jesus, as his act of kindness, his love has made a way for him to use words to, to share the story of Jesus. He's pointing others to Jesus, and, and we can point others to Jesus as well. I, I think that Acts chapter 4 verses 1 through 21 teach us three principles that can help us to point others to Jesus well. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them up to the fourth chapter of the book of Acts. There's an outline in that welcome packet on the back page of the bulletin. You can follow along and fill in the blanks if you'd like. There's a, the scripture reference there, Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 21. You can find that in the Bible in front of you. There's, uh, if you're using the Wallula Christian Church app, then that scripture reference is right above the outline on the app, if you find that. Acts chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 1 through 21 in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 1 there, this is what God's word says. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the, in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is 
no, there is no salvation. It, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. All right, so I think there's three principles that we can learn from this passage that can help us point others towards Jesus. Principle number one is to expect the unexpected. And as they were speaking to the people, uh, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. They were, they were speaking to the people. Uh, we we uh, introduced this with a story in, in Acts chapter 3 that, you know, Peter and John were simply being faithful with these sort of everyday acts. They, they were showing up at the temple like they had the day before and the day before that and the week before that. They were, they were participating in these times of prayer. They were remaining faithful in these ordinary ways, uh, and, and then something unexpected happens. And it's that unexpected event that, that uh, kind of steamrolls into more and more unexpected events. They were speaking to the people, and with that crowd, that, that crowd of folks who were also there, as they left the priests and abandoned their sacrifices and, and sort of ignored the time of prayer that they had perhaps shown up at the temple to participate in, and instead were watching this guy jump around and leap around and worship God for the miracle that had been performed, uh, this crowd of people gathered. And then after the, the people, some of the, some of the bigwigs of the temple start to notice. The priests wonder, why isn't anybody praying? Why is nobody at my altar to, to offer sacrifices? And so they show up. And then the, the captain of the temple, the captain of the temple is, is a, a priest in all likelihood who was in charge of other priests who were guarding the temple gates and who were guarding certain sections and certain areas of the temple. So if there's a disruption in the temple, you know, who do you call? You call temple security. And that's essentially what we read when the captain of the temple shows up. This temple security is arriving on the scene to see what in the world is causing this big scene. And along with the priests and the captain of the temple come the Sadducees, these religious leaders. Now as we read through the New Testament, especially the Gospels, we read uh, about Jesus encountering some different kinds of religious leaders. Mostly, we read about Jesus encountering uh, a group called the Pharisees. And there were some differences between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were very much respected by the people. The, the Pharisees were scribes. They were scholars. They were, uh, they were absolutely legalists, though. And, and uh, the Pharisees believed not only in what we would call the Old Testament. They, they, they followed the law of Moses in the first five books of the Old Testament, they took into account the wisdom literature.
scripture and the prophets, but they also would follow the oral law. They believed that the oral law was started by Moses when he received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And so they believed that there, was, there were these extra rules, these extra laws, these extra commandments that God had given to his people through this oral tradition. And so when Jesus talks to the Pharisees, it's often in condemnation of, of being so legalistic, of following all these rules and sort of piling on to the people some unnecessary, perhaps, uh, rules to follow and, and really paying more attention to the rules than perhaps the principles and the ideas behind those rules. The Sadducees discounted the oral tradition. They didn't believe that that was from God. And in fact, some Bible scholars say that the Sadducees only followed the first five books of the Old Testament, what they could definitely rule as the law of Moses. And you know, the Sadducees were also sort of a, a more aristocratic leader in, in the uh, Jewish culture. They were in charge of the temple. And, and, uh, and so in the Sanhedrin, they, they played that role. The high priest was a Sadducee. Uh, the Sadducees also differed in, with the Pharisees and the fact that the Sadducees didn't believe in any kind of resurrection. And so we sort of get to the heart of the matter here. As the religious leaders in charge of the temple come to hear what in the world is causing this commotion, they discover that it's Peter and John who had been used by God to heal this man. And now this man was giving credit to Jesus. He was giving credit to God for the miracle that was performed. And Peter's explaining, nobody ought to be paying so much attention to us, to to John and I, we didn't do anything. Jesus did that. His Holy Spirit worked through us, and Jesus healed this man, this same Jesus who you crucified and buried in a tomb and who rose on that third day. And, and so the, the Sadducees are troubled by this message, to say the least. Verse 2 says it like this. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They were greatly annoyed. You know, I sort of love that, that phrase, if, if for no other reason, I know you guys are way better people than I am, but I can make a, a list quickly of things that annoy me, right? The things that just sort of bug me. I, I was here with my son, uh, Clayton, the other day, and, and we were doing some stuff in the office, and we got ready to leave, and, and we, we saw that uh, by the recycling bin in the parking lot, there were all these boxes piled around the recycling bin. So we went over, and uh, I said, I had Clayton get into the recycling bin because it was full, right? That's the boxes all surrounding it. And, and he did his best dumpster diving and jumping up and down. And we smashed some stuff down and we, we piled some more cardboard in. But it had snowed since this pile of cardboard had been there and had blown around. And so there was cardboard all around the parking lot that we were literally digging out of the snow. Now, we neither one of us were Boy Scouts, so we were ill-prepared for this process. And we were using our bare hands and picking the cardboard up and and I don't want to say Clayton was whining about this but he was whimpering like a little girl about how cold it was and I'm like I know it's cold just the faster we do this the faster we can go and so we're piling it in there and and I've got to admit I was annoyed right I was annoyed but you know what happened and we, we got in the car and we got it all taken care of and when our hand thawed out right that was pretty much it Right? We were ready to go on with the rest of the day. It didn't, it didn't carry with us. 
right? It didn't carry over to the next day so much. We're not, we weren't super annoyed by this, or it didn't ruin our day. We didn't allow it to do that. And and so I I guess it's easy for me to make a list of things that kind of annoy me, but that's not really what we're talking about here in Acts chapter 2. It's not the the sort of hassle of of day-to-day life that we kind of like, oh man, I'd rather not do that. This is sort of a, a a deeper conviction that's occurring here in the religious leaders. They are, they are angry about what's happening. They are super anxious about what's happening. Some of your translations say that they are greatly disturbed, and I think maybe that's a better English word uh, that is used in translation here because it's not just annoying us. It's not just a sound in the background. This is this is rolling around in the pit of their stomach, and they can't get rid of it. They are jealous of what's happening with Peter and John and this crowd of people. They are worried sick about being able to sort of retain and hold on to their influence and power among the people and that crowd in the temple. And they, they want to know. They, they have to respond in some way. This Greek word that we translate here in in verse 2 as greatly annoyed is an interesting one. It's a very uh, lightly used Greek word in the New Testament. In fact, it only shows up one other place in the New Testament, and that's in Acts chapter 16. If you turn to Acts chapter 16 sometime today, you'll read a story beginning in verse 16 and and a few verses that follow about Paul, who is preaching and teaching in this this town, and and he encounters a a group of, of folks who had found, discovered this young woman who was possessed by a demon, and this demon allowed her to uh, divine the fortunes of of other people, and so she was telling the fortunes of others, and this group of of folks were taking advantage of her and selling the fortunes of others uh, to to others, and so she was was sort of their income, and, and Paul comes into town, and he's preaching about Jesus, and she starts to follow Paul around, and so for several days, she follows Paul around until finally, in verse 18, scripture says that Paul was greatly annoyed with what was happening. It's the same sort of not just uh, being bothered by a noise in the background, not being bothered because you have to take a few minutes and pick up a mess that somebody else left, but this deep conviction. It's the same word. It's sort of the same emotions but it's produced from a different place. And the reaction is way different than how the the Sadducees in Acts chapter 4 react because Paul is going to heal this young woman. He he doesn't want her to deal with this demon possession any longer. He wants her to be free. He doesn't want these, these men to take advantage of this young woman any longer. He wants her to be free of that. The Sadducees, man, they want to pile on. And and as Peter and John have healed this guy and they begin to teach about the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, to me at least, the really unexpected happens. Because I look at the story in Acts chapter 3 and I get to Acts chapter 4 and I think, well, Peter and John, they've done nothing wrong. In fact, the majority of the people in that crowd, in that audience, they're all for what has happened through Peter and John. They are praising God, and they are in awe of what has happened through the Holy Spirit. They're listening intently, we know, to what Peter and John are saying about Jesus. 
But the religious leaders, they have a different response. In verse 3, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day. For it was already evening, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. See, they responded from fear instead of love, and that response from fear and, and, and jealousy instead of love caused them to do something to me, at least, was unexpected. Maybe to, to us today it's unexpected. I don't know whether Peter and John were aware of this possibility or not when they started to preach about Jesus, but maybe even to them this response was unexpected. And when we are willing to, to point people to Jesus, we ought to expect the unexpected. But it's not just that this sort of worst-case scenario of unexpected happens, because God piles on the unexpected. You see, Peter and John are arrested. They're, they're taken away for the evening. The crowd sort of begins to disperse. But God uses the unexpected. He uses even in the midst of that, of that miracle and then this, this sort of, well, nobody wants to go to jail, this, this bad event occurring after this, this downtime in Peter and John's life. God still works through that to thousands of people coming to know Jesus. When we last checked in with the church, God's team numbered around 3,000. The count in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, is 5,000 men, so it's larger than even that. Thousands and thousands of people, through the, the example and the, the willingness to point from Peter and John to Jesus, led to thousands and thousands of people hearing and saying yes to the story of Jesus. When we, when we take on the, the task, when we're willing to participate, when we jump into the mission of pointing others to Jesus, we should expect the unexpected. The uh, second principle is, is that uh, as we practice these acts of kindness, that's really what Peter and John were doing after all. As we practice these acts of kindness, then we should do that knowing that Jesus is doing more than you think. Uh, Peter and John had just started this day like any other day. It was ordinary, uneventful. They had gone to the temple to pray. And then God continued to work through them. In verse 5 of chapter 4, it says, On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. You know, they got everybody together. They wanted to get all the knowledge or wisdom or however you wanted to think of that in one space to try to decide how do they, what do they say, what do they do, how do they counter what Peter and John had done. It reminds me of when celebrities, you know, sometimes celebrities, really rich folks, you know, get in trouble and they go on trial and you watch on the news or the courtroom scene and it's not, just the, it's not just the guy who's in trouble and his lawyer, but it's the guy who's in trouble and his 17 lawyers lined up. You know, there's this dream team of, of lawyers in the courtroom and why, why do people do that? Well, people do that, I think, to sort of confuse the facts, right? We're going to throw every piece of wisdom and knowledge at this and hope that something sticks somewhere so that we can have the result that we desire. And I kind of think that's what's going on here in, in Acts chapter 5 and 6. You know, they, they don't just call a select few. They get everybody they can in that room. 
They say, this is what happens. What's our response? And they come up with nothing. Right? They have no response. And so in verse 7, they finally relent and they say, well, let's just, let's just bring these guys in. We'll question them and maybe they'll get themselves in trouble. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? What happened? How did it happen? Verse, verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. I said at 9 o'clock that somebody should, should figure out for me, uh, because I didn't this week, how many times in the book of Acts we, we uh, read about the Holy Spirit uh, you, you know, doing something in the book of Acts. And somebody told me after service, they were paying close attention to my message, that it occurs 59 times in the book of Acts. You know, over and over and over again, the Holy Spirit is at work. And when we read about the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of Luke and then in the book of Acts, over and over, it's the Holy Spirit empowering followers of Jesus to do something. And that's exactly what we're reading about here in verse 8. See, Peter is markedly different from the Peter we knew on the night of Jesus' crucifixion. Peter is definitely different from the Peter we knew even at the ascension as he stares into heaven and he watches Jesus ascend into heaven. Peter is different than even the Peter who was waiting for the gift that was promised by Jesus. On Pentecost, the Holy Spirit shows up and the Holy Spirit indwelled just like he lives in every follower of Jesus today. He fills Peter up and he's changing him from the inside out. And so I wondered this week as I read verse 8, why why is Luke repeating himself? Because the Holy Spirit is there already. He's filled Peter. He indwells Peter. And here in verse 8, we read that the Holy Spirit filled Peter. And I think it's because we need, we need God, we need Luke, we need uh, the, God's word to repeat itself. We need reminded over and over again that that same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, that same spirit who showed up at Pentecost and allowed those apostles to speak in, I don't know, hundreds of different languages, 50 different languages, however many it was, you know, everybody heard in their own language, that that same spirit who, who worked through a handshake between Peter and this, this man who was unable to walk outside of, of the temple gate, that that same spirit lives and works in each one of us. We need to re be reminded. I had a friend this week who had a flat tire, and, uh, and I said, well, I'll try to help. I failed miserably. They, they went to higher sources, better sources, and got help, but I failed miserably, but I did my best. I, I said, well, do you have a spare tire? And they said, no. I said, what do you mean you don't have a spare tire? They said, the car didn't come with a spare tire. This new car didn't come with a spare tire. I guess I don't drive fancy enough cars to never ha to have a car that didn't come with a spare tire. And, and I thought, well, what in the world? And, and as I was thinking about this message and thinking about that spare tire, the Holy Spirit, sometimes we treat the Holy Spirit like a spare tire. Because you don't need a spare tire until you need a spare tire, right? Until the tire is flat. And so much of the time, that's how we treat uh, the Holy Spirit. Just Peter, you know, he needs the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is there. That's why God is way better than car manufacturers, right? He's not going to leave us without that spare. He's, the Holy Spirit indwells us. 
He's faithful even when we're not. God sticks by us. The Holy Spirit is going to show up when you need him. But maybe this reminder, you know, stands out to me because we, we ought to check in once in a while. You know, my dad, when I started driving, I remember my dad said uh, some things, right? He, there was a list of things that my dad told me when I started to drive. But one of those things when I, I'm driving, you know, this car is, hey, you had better once in a while check that spare tire, right? Because when you, you don't need a spare tire until you need a spare tire. And then when you need a spare tire, what you don't want to discover is that your spare tire is flat, right? That it's no good. And so once in a while, you had better check. When you check your oil, when you check your fluids, you had better check that your spare tire has air. And I think it's a reminder here in verse 8 to the followers of Jesus, to each one of us on his team, who's been filled with the Holy Spirit, who raised Jesus from the dead, this power source that's unbelievable. It's a reminder that, hey, we ought to check in with him once in a while. I, I would challenge you this week that as you're, as you're having your quiet time, as you're having your personal time of worship with God, as you're reading through scripture this week, as you're praying and talking to him, it, just join me in making a list of the ways that the Holy Spirit is making a difference in your life, the ways that he is working through you. I don't do this enough, right? I, I promise you, I promise you, this is what I don't expect. I don't expect next Sunday to, Sunday to be walking up to the door and to give somebody a handshake and to heal them. All right? But I do expect as we check in with the Holy Spirit, as we pay, as we pay attention to what he is doing in us and through us, that more and more we will hear him nudging. We will hear him directing us to practice what we might describe as simple acts of kindness. He'll be directing us and pointing us to practice love to those around us. And as we practice those simple acts of kindness, Jesus will be doing more than we can imagine. I promise. That's who he is. After all, that's all that happened in Acts chapter 3. That's what got Peter and John in trouble. Peter and John remaining faithful to God practicing a simple act of kindness. And Jesus, the Holy Spirit, works in this huge way, in this miraculous way, yes, to heal that man's life. I don't expect, I don't expect for you to heal somebody with a handshake this week. But Jesus will be at work. The Holy Spirit will be at work in a powerful way. If we remain faithful in these small things, if we practice these acts of kindness, then, then God is going to show up in, the, in a bigger way than possible. Now, Peter, as he's filled with this Holy Spirit, he says the, to the rulers of the people and the elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, he, he basically says, seriously, we're in trouble for this? We were kind to this man. And God healed him. And we're in trouble? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. He said, Jesus did all the heavy lifting. Jesus is responsible for this. And there is salvation in no one else, 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is responsible. He's done more than heal that man. He's made a way for each one of us, Peter and John, looking at that group of Sadducees who had grown up, you know, following those doctrines. He said, the resurrection isn't possible. Peter looks at them in the eyes, and the Holy Spirit prompts him and empowers him to say, resurrection is a real thing. You know it because you saw the empty tomb. And Jesus, who died on that cross and who was buried in that tomb, has raised from the dead. And now salvation is available, not just for us, not just for that man outside the temple gate, but for every one of you. How much more can Jesus do? Principle number two is to keep loving others, to keep practicing those acts of kindness and know that Jesus is doing more through them than we can ever imagine. Principle number three is to simply be with Jesus. Simply be with Jesus. Verse 13 says this, Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Verse 13 is my all-time favorite verse. I love this verse, and I love this verse uh, for lots of reasons. But I love this verse because it points out that Peter and John were uneducated common men. And I guess if you're a guy like me, there's lots of times in your life when you feel like, at least, an uneducated common sort of guy. And, And I'll admit, over the last couple of weeks, man, I've really felt uneducated and common bunches of times. I've had some difficult conversations with individuals where I've just felt completely inadequate to direct or lead in some way, I'm relying completely on the Holy Spirit to do something good because I felt uneducated in common in those conversations. I look at the national news over the course of the last couple of weeks or months or whatever, and, and man, there are issues that are so big and that are complicated that leave me feeling uneducated and common. You know, for instance, uh, the vice principal, uh, vice president, I don't know about the vice principal, but the vice president, his wife is uh, working, teaching a couple days a week at this Christian school, and there's uh, much controversy over that, and the, the, the standards, the uh, rules for admission, and, and all of that at this Christian school, and what it says. Now, I consider uh, the sexual ethic in the United States, and it leaves me feeling uneducated and common. The state of New York passed some abortion legislation, and then there's sort of this celebration in, in New York over the passage, and it just, if nothing else, it seems like a weird thing to celebrate, but, uh, you know, the issue of abortion and how the church responds leaves me feeling uneducated and common. You know, it was Martin Luther King's uh, birthday, that holiday, the kids were out of school, and, and it reminds me of, of the great progress that we've made, I think, in the United States with racism and, and all of that, but it also reminds me of the tons of work that's left to do. And it leaves me feeling uneducated and common. You know, I I guess I don't feel uneducated and common so much in what I I believe to be the right response to those questions. 
it doesn't leave me uneducated, feeling uneducated or common so much in, in what I think Scripture teaches about those issues. But it leaves me feeling that way because I, you know what I want more than anything? I want my response to reflect Peter and John's response. Verse 13 says, when they, when they listened, when they saw Peter and John, they saw the boldness with which they responded. They saw the courage with which Peter and John responded. And I so desire my response to big questions that I don't have all the answers to, to the small, intimate questions that relationships are, are sometimes present to me. I want my response in each one of those circumstances to be bold, to be courageous. But more than anything, the real answer is at the end of verse 13. Because they said, Peter and John, they're so courageous. They realized, they saw that they were courageous and bold. And they realized they were uneducated and common. There was no reason for them to be bold. There was no reason for them to be courageous, except that they took note that these men had been with Jesus. I want my response to be bold because I've been with Jesus. When I think about the sexual ethic in uh, the United States and in the church, I want our response to be bold because we've been with Jesus. That means that the sexual ethic inside the church on Jesus' team needs to get fixed. That begins, I think, with our marriages. Our marriages ought to look different than the marriages in the world. There ought to be something that, that leaves people asking, what do they have that we're missing? What's right about those relationships that's not right about these other relationships? We have a nephew who's graduating from the Air Force Academy. He, he, uh, he has this girlfriend, right? And uh, they're thinking about getting engaged and being married. And, and so they're thinking through that. And, and they decided we really want to know if we, this is very wise, right? Not everybody does this. We really want to know if we want to be married before we are engaged, that makes a lot of sense. The Air Force Academy evidently has this program where they, uh, at least you can participate in this mentorship program with individuals, I think, and then w with couples in this case. And so our, our nephew and his uh, girlfriend have this mentor couple that they meet with periodically. They went and they had supper with them and they were talking this over and, and uh, they were discussing different questions that they need to consider and, and uh, evidently this mentor uh, couple gave them a, a Google document filled with questions for them to discuss before they're married. And I admit when Sherry told me this, my first reaction was, well that's a little weird. You know, because nobody gave me a Google document there wasn't Google. So nobody gave me a word processor document filled with questions when I was considering being married. And, and, and truly, I, we don't do that very much. And I thought, well, my first response was a little weird. And as I thought about it, that's not weird. Right? That's, that's pretty wise. That's probably the right thing to do. You know who ought to be compiling those lists and sharing those lists? Followers of Jesus. 
You know, the New Testament talks about it like this, that the older women ought to disciple the younger women, and the older men ought to disciple the younger men. What are we talking about? We're talking about mentoring. The New Testament talks about it in terms of discipleship. We want to show off how we're living for Jesus with the younger generation. Our marriages ought to stand apart. Our marriages ought to be an example. And we ought to be talking about this like out loud with people who are considering that relationship choice. You know, our sexual ethic in the church, in marriage, outside of marriage, has to reflect Jesus. You know, you think about that abortion legislation, and there's all kinds of responses that I suppose we can consider bold, right? And I want you to hang with me, because what I'm saying is we ought not, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have an opinion politically or we shouldn't express that opinion politically. That's not what I'm saying. But a bold response that reflects Jesus, to me, makes the church a place where the single mother is loved and supported in a way that she does not experience. The single parent, right, is loved and supported in a way that they are not loved and supported anywhere else. Where they experience, where they experience the love and direction of Jesus. You know, it it ought to be a place where we are at work in a broken and devastated foster system. You know, it ought to be a place where our first response is of, of boldness in, in, in ministries that are, that are working and through with, with folks that are encountering that decision to choose life or not. We ought to be uh, boldly working in those areas. I read an article this week about racism in the United States, and it depressed me. I, it depressed me because it basically said that there's not any hope. It's, it's too broken. It's too broken on a large scale, and on a small scale, on an individual scale, it won't make any difference. And I thought, hey, you know, I often feel uneducated and common, but I, I think I, I will be just bold enough to say that the author of this article is wrong. That when Jesus says to love your neighbor like you love yourself, no matter what, that that will absolutely change the world. You know, our first response uh, in boldness and courage is to reflect that we've been with Jesus. Which here's a remarkable statement. Means we had better be with Jesus. It means that we are faithful in those everyday activities like Peter and John. That we're devoted to the apostles' teaching. That we're devoted to the breaking of bread and the fellowship and to prayer. In a way that we perhaps have not been devoted before. Because when people realize that somebody's been with Jesus, it leaves them without good answers. When they see the fruit of a life lived with Jesus, it leaves them without any fingers to point. 
I mean, that's what we read about here in Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 14. says, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. We've seen the fruit of Peter and John's relationship with Jesus, and there's nothing we can do to take that away. And everybody sees that fruit, and they realize that's a good thing. So what do we do? How do we, how do we get this to stop, they say. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Hey, we are going to let you guys go if you'll be really good boys and shh. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, right? But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You can say what you want, you can do what you want to us, but there's nothing you can say and there's nothing you can do to keep us from pointing others to Jesus. There's nothing you can do, and there's nothing you can say to keep us from sharing the story of Jesus. What does he need to do in our lives for us to be in the same place? For us to say out loud, just as Peter and John did, that there's nothing you can say, and there's nothing you can do, to keep us from sharing the story of Jesus. It's remarkable to me, more remarkable even than how our story began in Acts chapter 3, how our story ends in Acts chapter 4. Because Peter and John, they're left. They, they, they don't have any choice. <clears throat> the leaders are left without any choice. And they threaten them some more in verse 21. But then they let them go, finding no way to punish them because everybody saw everything good that they had done. They saw the fruit of their relationship with Jesus. And so this remarkable ending to our story is not even that Peter and John are released, but that when they're released, they go find the rest of the believers. They gather together like they had been, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. And they pray, they begin to pray. I suppose even for their enemies, those who persecute them, gathered together. And the Holy Spirit shakes the foundation of the building that they're praying in. When we are faithful to those small things in our life, when we are faithful to being with Jesus, we can absolutely expect the unexpected let's stand and worship him together